spiritual songs, and that's certainly a spiritual song, a personal song to sing, worthy of doing so. I enjoy singing the songs, particularly that line, this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross. That's worth remembering for sure, isn't it? And then it triumphantly sings out to Lord haste the day. Any discouragement you might have should be remedied by thinking about Christ on the cross and his soon return. It will be a grand and glorious day. In the meantime, while we're waiting for the Lord, we will follow him in his word and obey him as he has called us to do so. And particularly, I want you to notice the 11th commandment in chapter 13 of John. John 13, 31 through 35. This is the second part of last week, which I introduced as the 11th commandment, but I'll give this a different title. We'll emphasize the idea of, of loving one another in the sense of a new commandment. Look at verse 34, John 13. Jesus puts it this way, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The reason I used the 11th commandment last week is just give you a way to help remember it. And then this week, the idea of a new commandment, to, again, to help impress this on your minds to remember. This statement here, the given by Jesus in 1334, is not a good suggestion for you to consider and go home with. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is giving a divine directive. This is part of his final discourse that he's going to give to his disciples before going to the cross. This is right before that. This is a message that is going to then continue on because his disciples are followers of Christ and all of those that would profess Jesus Christ as Lord would be naturally a follower of Christ, has great application to us even this day. The command to love <coughs> is not primarily calling for having better feelings towards other people. That would be good. That's a noble thing. We should try that. Sometimes we don't feel like loving someone else. This is a call to action. The love that was demonstrated in particular here with Jesus Christ at this setting is here the Lord and master and teacher humbles himself and washes his disciples' feet. Very practical in his actions here. He provides an example of this love in action. The command, by the way, that's given, this new command, verse 34, it's not given to unbelievers. The, this command is given to those that are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember, at the beginning of this, he dismisses someone who claimed to be a follower of Christ, but really was a betrayer of Christ. Judas is scared. He was sent away. And then Jesus gives this command. The church can have all kinds of good programs for various needs of those that are outside the church, often called compassion ministries, and that's a good thing. But notice here in our text, Jesus takes the final hours here to remind his disciples of and I would argue it is a priority of their love, to have love among one another, that is, those that are in Christ. A common analogy used by the apostles was the idea that the church could be likened unto a physical body, hence the body of Christ. And because I like to take rabbit trails, I ask you to journey with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's many places we could go. And I hope you heard it as I read before our communion text here in Ephesians 2. It talked about those that are in Christ are members of a body. 
Well, here in 1 Corinthians 12, that's Paul fleshes this out to a greater degree of what we're talking about when we use the term the body of Christ. It's an analogy for a physical body. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You get the picture. There's a lot of members, but yet it's one. Just like a physical body might have many components, and yet it is unified as one. And then he goes on to explain that in verse 13. In the metaphorical sense, we are then for one in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, baptized into one body. The word baptized here simply means immersed, as it always does. It's not talking about the symbol of baptism in water, but this is spirit baptism where the Holy Spirit unites your heart with God through Christ Jesus. For the body does not consist of many, consist of one member, but of many. Drop down to, and then he gives an interesting illustration, which you might be familiar with. And then verse 18, drop down, I'm in 1 Corinthians 12, then 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. This is those that are truly in Christ have been elected, if you will, chosen by God to be in the body of Christ. All of them. If all, verse 19, were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And he's emphasizing the functionality of the church as a body. This is one of the reasons we gather together, do ministry together. There's no such thing as an isolated member of the body. If it was, there's something wrong with it. I don't want to be too graphic, as if you amputated you know, part of your anatomy, might have to do that for health reasons or whatever, but then it would no longer be a part of the body because it, why? It would be separate. The idea is this is alive and a living organism and it requires it to be together, to work together, to serve one another and in our application to love one another. Jump down to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so that dynamic exists. There is one body. It's the body of Christ. It's made up of many components individually, for sure, but they gather together and function as a body of Christ. With that background, then let's turn back to John chapter 13 and we'll read Verse 34 and following in the context in which it's given. Notice verse 31. I'm in John 13 now. When he had gone out, that was who? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the false disciple. Now he has the true disciples there. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I'll say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's going to ascend into heaven. So he has something for them to do. Why they're praying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There is something to do right now. What is it? Here's the priority. A new commandment, verse 34. I give it to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And really this if could be since you have love for one another. Let us pray. 
Father, I do pray that we would hear the commandment of Christ and heed it. Not by our own strength and the resources that we have, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Truly work in us to fulfill all that you have required. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've considered this command that's given here, love one another. But I'd like to flesh it out a little further and look at two other aspects of it. One is the model on which this is based, and the other is the message then that would be expressed by the church fulfilling what Christ has commanded us to do. This the new commandment, verse 34, that I give to you. If you remember reading the Gospels, you example would be Matthew 23. Jesus summarized the Old Testament law. 23:37 in Matthew, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. What he's saying is if you want to summarize up all that is required, love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the message. So my question then, since this was known and Jesus explained it, particularly to these disciples who would be very familiar with Old Testament law, then what is this expression, a new commandment? How is this the, the 11th commandment, as I mentioned before? Or how in the world could this possibly be new? Isn't this the same thing that they were told to do? Yes, but in a little different nuance. Notice verse 34. The basis for this love for one another is, first, it is as I have loved you. I'm not saying it's at odds with it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And that would be a good directive for sure. Leviticus 19.18 says that specifically, I am the Lord. But this emphasis here is now we have additional revelation, if you will, of Jesus Christ. The model then to look to is not so much inside of you and you as the measurement, but as Christ. The standard has been put up much higher. We, have, we do love ourselves. We're not always aware of how self-centered we might be. And it is healthy to have a certain sense of well-being. Well-being in the sense that you were made in the image of God. All human beings are, and therefore they have value. But far too often we tend to overestimate our value. We consider ourselves first and foremost. And so that is a good directive then to think of loving your neighbor as yourself. But the new commandment, the new directive is to look to even a higher standard. And one which can be displayed in the pages of Scripture. It is Jesus Christ. So the command says to love one another. Okay, well, how do we measure that? We look to Christ. And the preacher of Hebrews, after considering all those that went before, men and women of great faith, concludes by saying, therefore, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of testimonies to great faith. And so, because of that, we should lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But who do we look to? All of those? No, we look to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter. We'll get into that term in a bit. Perfecter, that is the completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is the perfect model for love for one another. He is the one to whom we are to ultimately look. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing there. 
Now that he has come, God incarnate in human flesh, you have someone else to look to. A far greater standard, a standard which over a three-year period, Jesus modeled for his disciples and taught them very well. He demonstrated it in his ministry and, of course, right now at this time in the, in the upper room. He, de he demonstrated what he was going to do in a very m memorable act of washing their feet. This love that they then, the disciples, are called to have, the love of God in Christ Jesus, was something that they proclaimed and preached and really affected their, um, their ministry. In fact, let's go look at a further detail that John provides for us of how this fleshes out, what he was taught by Christ. He adds a, a further description in one of his epistles, 1 John chapter 4. I invite you to turn there and see it for yourself. 1 John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus was there in his upper room. John was sitting in close proximity to Jesus. He learned this lesson well, and now he explains it to his flock. Verse 7 of, John, of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. You heard that before, haven't you? The directive here, notice, also is consistent with what Jesus is teaching. This is focused to the church, the body of Christ. That's who the beloved. How are they beloved? They're, they are loved of God in Christ Jesus. They are one with Christ, and therefore they are indeed beloved. I'll, I'll fill in the blanks here a little bit, but look, jump down to verse 11. And John, this is kind of how he writes this particular epistle. It's kind of concentric circles. He keeps circling back to where he had been and saying the same thing in a slightly different way. Here he repeats it with different language. Beloved, if God loved us, we ought to love one another. That's going back to verse 7 where he's tying that in. In any case, he says, let us love one another, verse 7. And why? Because love is, is from God. And whoever is, has been born of God knows God. Anyone who does not love God, or does not love, does not know God because God is love. His argument here is this is the expression of the new nature. If God has given you a new heart in Christ Jesus, it would naturally then respond in love for one another. Why? What's the basis of it? Because God is love. So if you don't love, you don't fulfill this command that we're commanded to do, it might cause you to want to examine your own heart to see if you are truly in Christ. Because that is the expression of it. God is love. How, how did God express his love? Well, we kind of already talked about it with Christ. Verse 9. In, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. John knew that very first hand, and he's repeating it to us. The love of God that's manifested is, is made known, if you will, through Jesus Christ. And so here is this new commandment to love one another as Jesus loved them. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sin. It means the payment for our sin, the covering for our sin, and our atonement. See, love actually is not just, it's not primarily a sentiment, it's, and it's, it's an action. And here's that action, Christ dying on the cross. And then he repeats in different words what he said in verse 7, and throws this divine ought here, because of what God has done for us, and who is the us? It is the beloved then we ought to love one another. He goes kind of in a different direction. It's worth looking at verse 12. And he says simply this, that no one has ever seen God. 
Okay. No one really clearly has seen God, and he's going to base the rest of it with his love on this. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That is, it is accomplished and completed. Christ's desire in regenerating a Christian, in making them new in Christ, is so that the love of God would be manifested in their life. And how is it manifested? It is seen in our actions towards one another. This is the goal of Christianity. It isn't to get you to fill out a perfect attendance. That's a good thing, sure. It isn't to just collect funds to pay for various things. It isn't to build buildings and so forth. It is that the love of God in Christ Jesus would then be manifested to the world through our love for one another. That's what he means by that. It is perfected in us. It is completed in it. This is what God has intended to occur. That it would result in a change of direction in our hearts one for another. How will this be accomplished? Verse 13. And we know that we abide in him and he in us. That is how will you know if you're a true believer? <clears throat> because he has given us of his spirit. Remember, Christ had promised the disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit, a unique dynamic to enable you to fulfill the commands that he has given. What's the primary command that we're looking at today? It is to love one another. It's not going to come about by the flesh, but through the Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testified, verse 14, that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That is the Savior of all types of people in that sense. Everyone. Salvation is in no other, but is in Christ Jesus. So we have come to know, verse 16, and to believe the love of love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. It gets back to a change of heart. It is a necessary to your new nature in Christ if the, love, the, the love of God then would abide in you and it would be manifested primarily in how you treat others that are in Christ. That is the beloved. That's how we started this. This is who it's directed to. It's not that we're going to shun other people by any means, but it is made complete. It's, it's demonstrated and accomplished when this is done within the body of Christ. It'd be very difficult to get much of this done outside because love needs to also be reciprocal, right? Well, you can see this design. It is designed to occur within the church. And that's what he says in verse 17, by this love is perfected in us. And again, here he's repeating what he said in verse 12, just in a different way. This is how First John works, kind of concentric circles. He said, so this is how it is perfected in us. This is how it's complete. How is it complete? That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are also we in this world. We have perfect peace in Christ. We are assured in our heart because it's, there's something inside that motivates us to love one another. And that gives us great confidence even in the world in which we're in. Why? Because... There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. That is, the idea of perfect here is, again, it's the completed work of Christ in your life. Do you want assurance? Do you want surety? Do you want peace? Even in the midst of great, difficult times, it is the love of God in Christ Jesus that is then perfected, matured, accomplished in your life. Fear has to do with punishment, he'll say, and whoever fears has not been perfected perfected in love. And it may take a while in your life if you first come to Christ to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But the goal is to perfect you or accomplish or complete you in Christ to where there is no fear because your trust is in him. As we read earlier, what, 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 what can man do to me? I take refuge in him. This is the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we do love and the reason we might love one another is because God first loved us. Verse 19. I'll finish this out. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, this is on the opposite side. And notice it's, it's the brother here in context is the brother of the beloved. If you hate them, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Strong statement. John doesn't mind saying that. And it is to shake you up, to examine your own heart, to call you to then love your brother. And the opposite of it, hate, demonstrate that you are not of God. This is the commandment we have from him, verse 21. John was there, heard it firsthand, and reminds us once again of the commandment that he heard from Christ around the communion table, for whoever loves God must also love his brother. I could go on, and you can find it too throughout the epistles, and I hope from time to time. This triggers your mind. I think John does a great job of explaining this in a greater degree, but you'll find it in the writings of Peter and Paul as well. They were not naturally loving people. John describes himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. I think he just never got over it because he was an ungodly man. And Christ chose him and drew him in. He wasn't naturally good at this kind of concern for other people. But he recognized this was the power and work of Christ in the heart of one who is regenerate, one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, that is, filling means control, and one who matures in Christ and grows in Christ. In the Old Testament, there was a promise that the new covenant would come. The new covenant is expressed in Jeremiah 31. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel expresses it this way in Ezekiel 36, and I will give them a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is, make you alive. This new covenant is fulfilled in Christ. And it is in him that we would have a new heart and a filling and control, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. This love that is commanded then is made possible only by a spiritual transformation of the heart and a continuing empowering by the Holy Spirit. And that's what you're, we're calling you to lean on. That's the model. The model is Jesus Christ. It will be fulfilled by his work in your heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit whom he sent. Number two, what will be the result of this type of love for one another? Back to John 13 and verse 35, he explains. The new model is Christ. Do the work of Christ, regenerating the heart and, fulfill, and filling every believer with the Holy Spirit, indwelling each believer. And what will be the message that comes of it? Verse 35, by, by this, that is your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. And I would say the emphasis here, I'd rather translate it since, so you get the idea. The result is for those that are in Christ, those who have a new heart, those that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will have a love for one another. And so why is he bringing this up? Because he's asking by the power of the Spirit to emphasize this in your life, to focus on this, to grow in this grace. He mentions here first in verse 35, notice that it is all people. The original refers to both believers and unbelievers here. For for believers, this faith changes, this results in a change of behavior. John has already said, if you don't love your brother, then you're not in Christ. This is the way that the gospel is proclaimed. It's certainly proclaimed by our preaching Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin, but it's also proclaimed in the practice of what Christians do. And that's essential. It's only half of the story if all we do is proclaim this word. If you don't see this word in action, it might be really hard to hear. When I first came to this church, I would invite people to come and hear the word of God. Because they can go to all kinds of other places that had all kinds of other programs and all better facilities and whatnot. But unfortunately, many of them just don't proclaim the word of Christ. And that's a saving and redempting, redemptive um, process. So what they would get here would be, well, I would read the scripture, explain the scripture, and preach Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. As people came in and became part of the church, in addition to that, and maybe even in a greater priority, one of my great joys is to invite people to see Christians who really love one another. And I want to commend you for that practice. You don't know what great joy it is for me to stand here in a pulpit and preach and... um, not have to be overly concerned about all of the chaos and confusion and complaints and criticisms and all this stuff that's going on. I'm sure there's some criticisms and complaints and whatnot here and there, but not to the point where it creates great disunity within the church. It's also a blessing to see you people that have different um, ways of doing things, practices and so forth, but to see you unified about those things that actually matter, that is Christ. And to see your genuine care for one another in times of need and when it's appropriate. Um, Seeing the saints gather together is a great witness for Christ. I'm not diminishing the fact that we need to preach Christ and him crucified, but but how, how are people going to see that? You know, what does it look like? I've, I've heard unbelievers respond to me back, back, that I figure they come in and, and see the weakness of our services and whatnot we have and be disappointed about it, but no. They would tell me, this is some wonderful people there. I'm not trying to build you up. I'm sorry for disclosing that. If it, if it brings pride, you can repent. <laughs> but um, it's a great joy to me to hear that. To hear that they, they, they could get the sense of people who actually cared for them and cared for one another. I think that's the point there of being completed to see Christ in the lives of one another, to see him in the lives of the disciples. He would say all people, so whether they're in the church or they're out of the church, they would, they would know. They would see Christ because Christ isn't physically here. He's called the church to be Christ in this earth. And this is how you can see them. And 
see Christ. And it says in our text here, verse 35, it says they, they will know. That is, they're not going to become Christians because of this, but they, they will know about Christ. They'll, they will see what Christ looks like in the lives of his people. This, this fulfilling this command is, is certainly not going to bring you favor before God, but it will certainly enhance your fellowship with him and with one another. He says, you will know what? That you are my disciples. And disciple simply means a follower of Jesus Christ. It is true we don't always act in accordance with our new nature. We still re- wrestle with that which remains of, of our sin. We call it the remaining sin. But those that are in Christ, those that are regenerate, have a new trajectory in life where this is our inward desire to love one another. That's what he's calling for. He's not asking you to have all of that perfected right now at this moment. But that is the direction that we're all moving towards. We call this the doctrine of sanctification. That is, becoming more like who you really are. In your glorified state, you'll be perfected. That, that's where it's going to end up at. But in this life, as Jesus would leave his disciples here on earth, they have work to do. And the command is to love one another. That's the work that they must do. And note again, I've emphasized it before, and I'll say it one more because John mentions it here. That is, you have love for one another. That's how they'll know. This love is directed toward one another, as I mentioned, in the body of Christ. Not that we don't have a love for those that are outside the body of Christ. I think the point here is this new commandment is a priority to those that are in Christ Jesus. Those that are in the body of Christ. We have a responsibility to love and focus that love within the church. I look at it this way. Maybe this will help you. As concentric circles. Beginning with your home. Whatever that consists of. If you're married. Husbands are to do what? Love their wives. And wives are to submit to their husbands. Because of their love for Christ. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands love your Wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. This love that you would have for one another is an illustration of God's love for the church. It has a practical implication. It proclaims that. And so there is a great responsibility within your own home. 528 of Ephesians. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. How? Just as Christ does the church. Because we are, and here's the word again, members of his body. So why should families stay together, husbands and wives? Because of Christ, to honor him, to demonstrate that. That's what you're doing. You may get irritated at one another, and I understand that, because of the flesh that remains. But the driving force in your relationships, and, and I'm starting here at the, at the home unit, should be because of your love of Christ. That, that's why you would forgive one another. That's why you would be patient with one another. That's why you would have long suffering with one another. Because you love Christ. And Christ would be exalted. 
And Christ would be in your home in that sense. And that is, a, that is a priority. And those of you who have children, we pray for you guys every day. But that needs to be a priority of your love. That they would come to Christ. And God has given them to you as a responsibility, a stewardship, if you will, only for this time, only for this life. Marriages will be over when we see Christ and in a glorified state. Our family units will be over when we stand before Christ. This is a temporal thing, but it isn't, but it's very important. And it is the ground for which the seeds of faith can be sown in the hearts of these little ones. And it's a great priority to demonstrate that love of God in Christ to the children. To bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Even if we have greater work to do, we might think sometimes of going about and preaching the gospel to the nations. We shouldn't do so in abandoning those that we have a primary relationship in the home. That is husbands and wives and children, whatever your case might be in that circumstance. I remember hearing about a fiery preacher that went out and preached the gospel in the turn of the century. He was a baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. You ever heard of him? It's an interesting biography to read it. Quite a dynamic person. And really he went around everywhere preaching the gospel to great crowds. Spent a lot of time doing that. He did bring his wife on board with him to kind of help administrate things. But the sad thing is he, he neglected his family. He just let somebody else raise them because they were busy on the road preaching the gospel. <laughs> One of his sons was born in 1892, another in 1901, and a third in 1907. These three sons were the source of untold grief and despair for their parents. They were drunkards. While their parents fought for prohibition, they lived wild and riotous lives and embarrassed their parents. All three died before the age of 40 in tragic, violent deaths. The oldest son committed suicide after being arrested for drunkenness and auto theft. One died while driving home drunk from a party, and the other crashed an airplane. The three sons had a total of nine marriages between them. And the wife of Billy Sunday, was, her name is Nell, was blackmailed and forced to pay large sums of money to their ex-wives in order to keep them silent about their son's infidelities. There's a certain priority, and God has given you children not to neglect them, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to show them the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is a great mission field, and we encourage you, to do that very thing. But the love of God broadens beyond that. And if that's all that you have attention towards, you're, you're missing it. Because it broadens beyond that. There is a responsibility there, but his emphasis is, beloved, to love one another. That is, within the church. And, and it is that kind of directive that is called for. If you read in Acts chapter 2, it talks about the church, the early church, when they first got together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul because many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. That's a description of the early church. Those are key elements to be devoted to doctrine. Fellowship with one another. The breaking of the bread is this communion to be reminded of Christ continually. And certainly prayer. Those are four marks of a very healthy church. So how did they respond? In their particular state, they had a great need because, because in that culture, coming to Christ meant many of them would lose their jobs. Many of them would be ostracized. So what did they do? 44 of Acts 2, I'll read it for you. Those who were believed, that is the beloved, they came together and had things in common. 
They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. That's the church. A generous heart, a loving heart who sees a need within the body of Christ and fills that need. This isn't a prescription for us to do exactly as they did, but rather an example of the spirit of compassion in a particular circumstance into which the family of God was then made a priority, the body of Christ. And might I add this too, and I'm thankful. I, I'm not, I'm just going through the text, not necessarily jumping on anybody about anything. I just want to remind you of it. But I want to add here too is I do see much in this place as I think about it of compassion for one another. I'm thankful if there is a financial need. I don't even have to, with somebody within the body of Christ. Thus far, I've been here quite a while. I haven't had to ask anyone. Next thing I know, gifts show up and people take care of their needs. And that's a great thing. I appreciate all the help that's been given to me in my various times of needs. I really appreciate it. I do see that. But I, will, I just want to add one more thing that's something I had to learn is when you do need something, go ahead and receive it. It's from Christ. You don't owe the member in the church something because they did something. They're doing it for Christ, and you receive it as a gift from Christ. I don't know if that helps you or not, but I recognized it was my pride that kept me from asking for help and receiving help. I, you know, self-made man, I can do things on my own. Sometimes you need help. And I want to thank everyone for the help they have continually given to me and just encourage you to, to not only give help, but also to receive it. Well, finishing out my circles, if I hadn't lost you yet, it, you know, it starts in the immediate responsibility of your home. Don't neglect that. It, it expands, of course, to the church, and that is the priority in the text here. And then beyond that, certainly to your neighbor, as you have opportunity to do, do good to all men, especially those that are in the household of faith. That's what I'm saying. Don't neglect the household of the faith, trying to expand beyond that. And then finally, Christ calls us to love our enemy. The, the thrust here of the text, though, is for the church and for the beloved to do this, to love one another. And I'll end on this text. Look at verse 34 again. Love one another just as I have loved you. This is Christ. How has he loved you? Well, love one another by that model. By this, what message will you give all people, both within the Christ and those out, will then know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful for Christ Jesus our Lord, who demonstrated great love to us, why we were sinners, died for us, and paid the penalty for our transgressions, everyone. And because of the love of Christ, we can have true love for one another. I pray, Lord, that this would be perfected, made known in greater ways within this body of Christ as we draw together to glorify you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things. Respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you. If you've examined your heart and you determine that well, maybe there's not genuine love there, you can confess Jesus Christ as Lord right now, and he can change your heart and do so even as we speak.
chosen ones, holy and beloved, we would have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. May be, this be done because it indeed is the will of Christ. Amen. I'll stand and turn to 500 in our hymnals. Number 500, Trust and Obey. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. For we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks for you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praises. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Amen.